0: Well, Acts chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning, and um, you know, discipline is one of those words, or obedience, Uh, well, we've been singing about discipline, but discipline and obedience tend to go pretty much hand in glove, don't they? Sometimes we use our hands, if you have children, to uh, make sure they understand the point we're trying to make, but when I think of the word obedience, I'll have to admit, I don't get warm, fuzzy feelings like, oh... I love to talk about obedience. Uh, You know, my children growing up did not like to hear that term because it usually meant they were in trouble. So we talked about obedience and discipline and right and wrong and those kind of things. Uh, But when we hear that word, I I would venture to say that most of us would associate it with either raising children or animals. Not that the two should be confused, although in some ways it's easier to raise animals. (laughs) You know, you just put them outside and... You're done with them for a while, but uh, anyway, the, the, the term is not a warm and fuzzy term, and yet I believe in God's mind, and I think on His heart. It, it's a very important word, because He would say, and I believe we're going to learn through this, that obedience brings blessing. Now, it's not always a one-to-one thing like, I obey, boom, I'm blessed. I obey a little bit more, and boom, I'm blessed even more. You know, let's not put God in a box and say he has to jump through the hoops that we put in front of him. But I think the principle in the Bible is very clear. Obedience is what God asks of us. He asks us of it because he knows if we don't obey him, we begin a road or a slippery slope or whatever illustration in your mind you want to use that can lead to bondage and can lead to destruction. And I could probably spend the rest of our time Telling you stories of people that, unfortunately, I have observed some from afar and some up close that have chosen to live lives of disobedience to the Lord. And it just ruins them. And we all think the same way. A little bit's okay, right? And that's exactly what the adversary wants. A little bit is okay because that's the first step. And then a little bit more is the second step and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And we're going to see an example today of God's very swift hand of judgment being meted out on a couple that had started those steps way before Acts chapter 5. Obedience sets us free. And God's hand of loving discipline is always bringing us back to that point. And as Peter prayed earlier, we all have areas of disobedience. That's part of the journey we're in. I wish I could say that when you accept Jesus, it's just, you know, I can tell you positionally, you are a brand new person. You are holy. You are righteous in God's side. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But man, you don't live that way, do you? All the time. And neither do I. And so the good work that God began, Philippians 1.6, we, be we can know that He is faithful to continue that work all the time, 24-7, always on the job because he loves us and he will discipline us as his children to bring us back to those points of obedience or disobedience to teach us because he wants us to live free in Jesus so others will see that and say, man, there's just something something different about those people. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something different. And that's exactly what was happening in the early church. There was something different about those people who grew up with a Jewish background under the law, doing their best to live by the law, doing the appropriate things at the appropriate time, and yet suddenly had a power and a freedom that they'd never known before. And others noticed. And they began to come. They began to come around the early church because they saw Jesus in them. And then they began to follow Jesus. And the church grew and grew and grew. And at chapter 5, estimates are they are up to about fifteen to 20,000 people. because People began to come, began to follow. And then as they grew in their faith, like the early disciples, they began to go. To become fishers of people and to bear eternal fruit. And I can tell you unequivocally that that is God's will for all of our lives. First we come at some point. We hear, we choose to believe with the Spirit of God at work as only He knows how to do, to follow and then to begin to grow, and then we begin to go. But unfortunately, sometimes as we talked about last week, we get stuck somewhere between here and here, maybe in the pulpit somewhere. (laughs) Well, it may be an issue of obedience. God wants to move you this way. And He's brought you here today by His divine appointment to say, Let's talk about going from just being a follower to being a reproducing disciple through the lives of others. Because that's what I want. That's, that's where the action is. And I think that's where we all want to be, but getting there can be a little scary at times. So we'll talk about that too. Let's pray and ask God by his spirit who inspired this literally God-breathed many, many years ago. From the, from the breath of God, we hold in our hands the word of God. What an amazing thing. I, I hope that if nothing else, we are learning how, what a privilege it is to have God's word in our language, in multiple translations, one that connects with us, but mostly connects with our hearts. Because it's all about the heart. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church family and to learn from the early church. Not because they were perfect or they did everything right. We're only into the fifth chapter and we see a real problem. And so we know, Lord, it didn't take a generation or two. It took literally weeks when sin raised its ugly head in the church. Up to this point, it may have seemed like just the perfect situation. But in some ways it was maybe more of a perfect storm that was going to hit because it's all about the heart. And we're going to see in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira people whose God was money. And they took steps accordingly and it literally cost them their lives. We realize, Lord, that it's unusual today to see that type of judgment meted out so quickly. But we'll also learn that your judgment is coming upon every one of us, Lord. We will all stand before your throne in Christ or not, to be judged either by how we lived our lives as believers in Christ, to be rewarded accordingly, or to be eternally condemned, because we don't know Jesus. Lord, those are are powerful truths. Would you help them to sink deeper into our hearts and minds, so that as we live our lives day by day, truth will begin to just captivate us more and more. Thank you, Father, for your presence. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Now we worship you through your word, a gift from your hand, so that we might know. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Well, quick review, but before I do a quick review, uh, I just want to really encourage the third through sixth graders, the blast group i know you have your sermon notes today you're working on them is that right mrs Friesen? where is mrs Friesen? is that a thumbs up are they here today i think i think okay good Just want to make i'm reading the bulletin and i think i've got today's bulletin yep okay all right <laughs> anyway hey take those notes and make sure you show them to mrs freeson because i don't know, I think she's got a free bike or something for you i mean we're giving away money here and this is this is a this is a place to be um but I'd love to see those too. I'd love to see what you, what, what you hear, what God is speaking to your heart about. And, you know, I can learn a lot from you guys too. So anyway, so make sure you show them to her so you can get whatever she's given you. But also, uh, I'd like to see them too. So come by the door and, and uh, show me your notes. All right. So Acts chapter 1, we see the early church being born uh, 50 days after Jesus had ascended. During that period of 40 days, we see him appearing to uh, more than 500 people. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. We see him promising the Holy Spirit again that we would have power from on high to be a living witness because without the Holy Spirit, we're dead in the water, so to speak. We need the Spirit of God to give us new life, to help us live out this new life, and to share this new life. Uh, Without the Holy Spirit... It isn't going to happen. It's like cutting the power to the building and flipping the switch. Nothing happens. So the Holy Spirit is here to be our teacher, our comforter, uh, empowering us. to. He is the one who's really teaching you now. And my hope and my job is to prepare the best I can under the tutoring ministry of the Holy Spirit as I study God's Word and then to, as faithfully as possible, present that to you, but knowing with confidence the power of His Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. So... I can I can preach with confidence, but I, need, I do need to stick to my notes, so I'm going to keep going here. And then we see new leadership being brought in to take the place of uh, Judas who had died. We see the Holy Spirit coming. We see Peter preaching a very short sermon, and a huge number of people are converted. They follow Jesus. They go from coming to following Jesus just in a short amount of time. We see the growth of the believers in chapter 2 and those those basic things that we all need to do to move from following, to becoming a, a going Christian, one who is going in the power of the Spirit. Peter preaches again, more people are converted, they get themselves in a little hot water between the, before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was like the um, supreme court of the Jewish people. Uh, Seventy people, uh, not equally split between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, as some refer to it. uh, The books of Moses. They held to that very strongly, not believing in the resurrection of the dead. They tended to be a wealthy class of people, a lot of power, a lot of influence, a lot of family relationships. The Pharisees were more from the common people, if you will. They did believe in the resurrection of the dead, and from a an average Jewish person's standpoint, were probably a little more respected because they definitely could relate to the common people more. They weren't on this status, you know, tower, so to speak. That the, uh, that the Sadducees tended to be on. So that would change periodically, but the 70 were a mixture of those two groups. So later in the book of Acts, as I mentioned, I think it's in chapter 23, Paul is on trial before that group, and what does he do? He says, and he was a Pharisee, his background was that, and he knew the group he was dealing with, and so he says, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Well, man, the place exploded, because and then they started fighting among themselves. Because if you don't know Jesus, what do you fight for? Just being right, right? And uh, so that's what that group started doing. So Peter and John are before these guys. The believers pray. They're released. They go on with their ministry. Then God moves through the uh, peoples whose hearts are tuned into him. And with compassion, they make sure people are cared for. Again, this is not a proof text for socialism. Socialism is a forced form of political persuasion. This is a compassion based on love for Jesus and love for others and saying, I've got some extra, let me help you out. And that's what was happening in that early church. Well, that became a, like a pretty, I'll say, a cool thing to do, sort of speak, in that early church. We see Barnabas being introduced at the end of chapter 4, and then we see Ananias and Sapphira. Here's what's inter- interesting. Maybe your footnotes, if you have a study Bible, say this. Ananias' name means God is gracious. You ever thought about that? Uh, You know, in in the culture I grew up in, in your name was given, but there wasn't a lot of, I'm assuming, I've never asked my mom this, but I'm assuming my parents didn't say, let's give them a name that really means something. I think they gave me a name that just sounded right because I had a, You know, Irish background, although I found out, as I shared with you, I have more Scandinavian in me than Irish. But that point aside, my name reflects a heritage of a lot of Irish influence. So, Patrick Michael. Now, I've learned what that means, but it wasn't a big deal to my parents at the time. Um, Usually, it was, get over here, you're in trouble. That was the common phrase I heard growing up. But Ananias and Sapphira, coming from a Jewish background... We given names, God is gracious, sapphira's name beautiful, did they live those names out? No, maybe at some point they did, but we'll see a a heart that is more tuned in into the God of money or mammon and material things, which led to lying than a god tuned into heart. you see obedience is a constant refining process. God's goal for your life and my my life is to obey Him. We may not like the sound of that. That may not make us feel good inside. But that doesn't matter. The point is, the end results of obedience will make you feel good inside because it will bring us peace and joy and love and grace and all of the things that we desperately want, those legitimate human needs that are built into us. But... Only God can really satisfy those. So the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to always be appealing to us to do it this way, do it this way, do it this way, because it seems like it's working for other people. And God says, no, do it my way. Give me your heart, first of all, and I will give you ultimately the things that you long for, because I'm the one who made you. So he's always refining our obedience, and it's often the result of, first of all, Discipline by the Lord. Brian read from Hebrews 12. I'm not going to read that again, but great passage on God's loving discipline, brought out of love for his children. Verses 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, you know, God is a gracious guy, together with his wife Sapphira, that beautiful one, also sold a piece of property like Joseph, otherwise known as Barnabas, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. Now, nobody said, you had to give us all the money, Ananias. There was no rules. It was just give as you feel led to give. Okay, so he sold a piece of property. So we don't know if he was wealthy or not, but he owned some property. He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the at the apostles' feet. And the implied idea is that he presented it as the whole. So if the property sold for a thousand dollars, let's say, and he kept back two fifty and brought the seven fifty, what he projected to them was, Hey, I got seven hundred and fifty dollars for this, and here you go. I wanna I wanna help out. I wanna be part of this, you know, cool group or whatever they called themselves back then. And Peter said to Ananias, God must have given him insight. How he knew this, I don't know, but obviously he did. He says, how is is it that Satan has so filled your heart? That phrase filled is the same phrase that's used to talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. It's all about the heart, isn't it? Now, we don't know if Ananias and Sapphira were just coming around. Or if they were truly followers of Jesus. The Bible doesn't tell us that for sure. Let's just assume that they were. It raises some very interesting questions. Can a follower of Jesus be filled by Satan? Real quick uh, summary of demonic activity. I I don't know if I'd use the word filled. Can they be influenced? Can they be... Uh, uh, Can they be uh, controlled by? Can they be uh, used by? Absolutely. Because it all starts with what steps a person takes towards or away from obedience. It's called a foothold. Satan loves to gain footholds in our lives through the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if we're not always doing battle in those areas, he's going to gain a foothold. He'll start with one and then a handhold, and then a body hold. and next thing you know, our lives be- begin to reflect more of Satan and less of Jesus. Because it all starts with the mind, it starts with the thought process, it starts with an act of the will. Obedience is a crisis of the will, it has nothing to do with feelings. In fact, it's rarely a good feeling. It's more, I'm in a crisis situation, what do I do? God's will, the world, the flesh, or the devil. And they typically work together. Ananias and Sapphira are an example of people whose hearts were not right with God. Whether they are believers or not, I don't know. I'm just assuming they were. Because God says he will discipline his children. And Peter said, Ananias, how, has, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you could have not given the whole amount, but you deceived us. You tried to deceive us. You lied to the Lord and you lied to us. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Because sin really begins in the the thoughts, in the heart, and the first person we're dealing with is the Lord and ourselves. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Now, there's a lot of questions about, wow, how, <laughs> how'd that happen? You know, heart attack, struck down, we don't know. The point is, he died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. You think? <laughs> you, you lie, boom, you're dead. Okay, well, I'm telling the truth from here on out. You know, that's a kind of a shot across the bow, and it took off part of the ship in the process. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now, these are probably just young men that were part of the church. They weren't designated as the, you know, take care of the liars guys. About three hours later, his wife came in. Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, tell me, is this the the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen." The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. We're not sure how, but she died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is probably not a good outreach event to (laughs) plan on. When we want people to come, you know, it's usually not, Hey, we're going to kill somebody, come and see it, you know. Um, however, the word got out, these people are serious about truthfulness. This, this is not a God to be messed with. This is a God who is holy and righteous. You messed with him, you picked the wrong guy to have a fight with because you're going to lose every time, so to speak. The Lord's discipline always comes out of love, but it also comes out of His holiness. 1 Corinthians 11, a passage that we read often uh, every couple months when we have the Lord's Supper or communion. We're familiar probably more with verses 23 through 26 and should be. It talks about the Lord's Supper, how He instituted it. But in the context of this, it's really talking about holiness and preparing ourselves for that because we need to take it extremely seriously because we're remembering What Jesus did for us. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves, look inward at our hearts before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or have died, a term that was used in the New Testament. But if we were more discerning with regards to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. That's pretty heavy-duty stuff. I think what I get from it is we better pay attention to what we're doing. God takes His holiness very seriously, and if we're representatives of His He wants us to make him look good. That's what it means to glorify God. Make him look good. So we have to ask, is my life at work, at school, at home, my marriage? I mean, everything I do 24-7, does it make God look good or not? If it doesn't, then God has brought you here to say, let's talk about obedience. Because it all comes down to that. Whose will is going to be lived out? Yours, the world, the flesh, the devil, or Jesus? If we want freedom, Jesus is the way to go. One of the most difficult but necessary actions for churches is the discipline of its members. Nobody likes that. And nobody should like that. Because it's like disciplining your kids. If you really like disciplining your kids, you better take a parenting class. <laughs> because that is not supposed to be fun. It's, it's hard work. But as a parent who loves a child, you know it's for their best so that they can be good citizens, so they can be good students, so they can make a decent living in all the things that we want for our kids. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus tells us very specifically how to deal with people who are, we know are sinning. And we're not talking about struggling or occasionally you know, having a problem, but this is more of a life pattern. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Keep it, keep it private. If they listen to you, you have won them over. Great, they're going to find freedom. But if they will not listen, take two or three others along so every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You know, you've got to get the facts right. It can't be hearsay. Well, I heard that somebody said this to somebody else. No, it's got to be face-to-face facts. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. In other words, let's outnumber them in, in positive peer pressure. But if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax gatherer, or in other words, someone who is still in chair number one. They don't know Jesus. If they have an unrepentant heart and are will unwilling to turn from sin, there, there's a serious, serious disconnect going on. Either they don't know Christ or they are so filled with the influence of Satan that their life, doesn't even show a faith in Christ. He says, truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, Jesus is there with you, helping you through this very, very difficult process. Again, I truly tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. We often use that verse to talk about prayer requests. Well, it is a prayer request. Lord, give us wisdom to know what to do with this brother or sister who's in sin because this is serious stuff. 1 John chapter 5 refers to a sin that leads to death that I've yet to find a theologian who names it. I'm not sure if we're meant to know exactly what it is. Maybe it's, again, just a kind of a shot across the bow, like don't mess with sin. 1 John chapter 5 Verse 16, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. and ultimately, it would be rejection of Christ. But it's not specified what that sin might be. I am not saying that you should pray about that. It's like, too late. I, that's the impression we get, isn't it? But it says, all wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, I would say, not to disagree with this, but we pray for people that they would come to Christ if they name Christ, but they're still living in sin and it's getting worse and worse and worse. We pray for them, but at some point we release them to the Lord and say, all right, Lord, only you know their hearts. Only you really know what's going on there. Oliver Winder Holmes, early American writer, says, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits them all. Sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle that fits them all. Chuck Swindoll, former pastor of Evangelical Free Church in Fullerton when I was younger, younger, in my days at Biola and Talbot Seminary, that was the place to go. Everybody wanted to go to Chuck's church everybody wanted to preach like Chuck and then we all graduated and realized no we're not Chuck Swindoll but anyway he used to say this the Lord's wheels of judgment grind very slow but they grind very fine no one's getting away with anything in any corner of the earth whether they're in this chair or this chair or these chairs God sees everything all the ways of man are before the Lord the Bible says now that can be scary or it can be freeing I would like to live on the freeing part of it but to do that means I need to obey when God brings me to a point of disobedience I better pay attention because he takes it very seriously because my freedom and his name is at stake Second thing we learn about obedience and the refining process is that purification leaves, leads to fruitfulness. Obviously the church is purified very dramatically. It says, "...the apostles performed many signs and wonders, supernatural things through them that the Holy Spirit chose, chose to do among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's Colonnade, that eastern side of the temple area." No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and as I tried to understand that myself, it seems to be saying people who were outside of the church were maybe keeping their distance a little bit because, wow, I don't. <laughs> you join and you die? Wow, that's, you know. Now, we know there's a bigger picture to that, dying to self and so forth, but. You know, this is pretty literal stuff. Or it could be more people like Ananias and Sapphira who were kind of hanger-oners thinking this is a great group to be a part of, but I'm not going to give it my all. I'm just going to kind of hang around. Well, they quit coming because they knew the price was extremely high. You're going to be a disciple? Pay the price. Jesus paid it all for you. You can pay no less. Give him your all. And that was a word that came through very clearly. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. They wanted to follow Jesus. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at, even at, at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. That was, a, that was a belief in that day that even the shadow of a person represented that person. So if you can't get in and touch him or have him touch you, at least try to, you know, get in the shadow because, oh man, yeah, I can feel it. that. Kind of like someone touching Jesus' garment. And the power flowed. And who was that person? So again, that same type of mindset. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits. And all of them were healed. God was doing some amazing, amazing things through the early church. He's still doing amazing, amazing things through His church today. Perhaps different in different regions according to what he's wanting to accomplish. But he is certainly fully alive and well on planet earth. But like the pruning of our lives, discipline that leads to purity also brings fruitfulness. John chapter 15, a verse that we looked at not that many weeks ago as we studied the book of John, says this. I am the true vine. And my father is a gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be so that it will be even more fruitful. I've never asked my trees in my yard if they, you know, like being pruned. My guess would be they'd say, ooh, ouch, that hurts. But the end result is far better than what they were. And any farmer who grows that type of permanent crop would agree. Yeah, you got to You've got to prune them so they can bear more fruit. And God's going to prune us too. Why? Because he doesn't like us? No, he loves us. But he wants to free us up so we can go and bear more fruit. He wants to keep us moving down that path of discipleship. Purification leads to fruitfulness. There's a sand. In fact, if you have your cell phone, go ahead and hold it up. And please show me that you're looking at your Bible app. <laughs> if I see... Uh, FaceTiming or things like that. I'll just walk down the rows and you can give them to me. And, or if, you, know, you could say, hey, Pastor Pat's doing a great job if that's what you're, you know. Anyway, I just invite you to keep your heart here, not somewhere in la-la land uh, through your phone. Anyway, the point being, every one of your phones, every one of your laptops uses a silicone product that is made from a ultra-pure Sand. And I'm sure you have been, if not, this is going to be on your bucket list of places to visit Spruce Pine, North Carolina. How many have been to Spruce Pine? That's what I thought. Well, if you were in the cell phone manufacturing business, you'd probably say, oh, we love Spruce Pine. And you know why? Because they have a snowy white grained product there. It's quartz. And it's on the most refined quartz on earth. Is found in Spruce Pine, North Carolina. It's the it's the most purest natural quartz. Now, cell phone manufacturers aren't satisfied with that, though, because they take it through a refining process and they get it to the point where well, let me just read this because I'm probably going to get this wrong. Here's what here's what a uh, uh, geologist Michael Wellen says: the sand is blasted in a powerful electric furnace, resulting in 99% pure silicone. But that's not nearly good enough for high-tech uses. Additional extreme processing is required because computer chips need silicone to be 99.99s in a row percent pure. Oh, no, 11.9s, I'm sorry. 11.9s following that. We are talking about one lonely atom that is not silicone among billions of silicone companions. God has us in a similar process. Why? Because he wants to communicate to us and through us, which is far more important than our phone or our laptop. He wants to speak to our hearts, but when we are dabbling in sin, perhaps, if we've taken one, two, three, or more steps towards something that we think is better than God's will, we're not going to listen quite as closely. And until he can get that cleared up, he's probably not going to use us quite as fruitfully as he'd like. And so obedience, it really is freeing. It's saying, look, the point is to be as pure as possible. Now, positionally, we are pure. The righteousness of Jesus clothes us. We are perfect in the sight of God. And you're going, if you knew what I did, I know. If you knew what I did yesterday, you know, that's not the point. The point is we have a positional righteousness But in Christ, then, we are called to live that out. Live out our true identity, which is holy and righteous in Jesus. And we can only do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And God will discipline us and bring us to points of obedience or disobedience to make a choice so that we might be pure, so that he might communicate in and through us, so that we might go and make disciples and we might bear fruit. And that's how a church grows. It grows through its membership. It grows through people whose hearts are so connected to God they can't help but have a heart for people who don't know Jesus. It just burdens them because they know if they stay in this chair the rest of their lives they are bound for hell itself. Never to come back. There are no second chances. It's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment period. So we have one shot at the people that Jesus brings into our lives. One shot. We can either focus on the things of this world or we can focus on the kingdom of God as disciples and say, man, from this point on, I'm going to do everything I can to be a follower of Jesus and to be as pure as I can because I want to go fish for people because there's people all around me that need Jesus. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to get others around me who can figure it out and we're going to start gathering some people around us that need Jesus and we're going to ask them to follow him. That's how churches grow. That's our, how our church needs to continue to grow. We've been doing it for a hundred years. Let's not stop now. Let's continue to figure out new ways to get people to come so they have an opportunity to follow, so they too can keep that process going. That's how the early church grew, and that's how Shafter Mennonite Brethren needs to continue to grow. There is no secret. It's hard work, it's discipline, and it's obedience. Finally, persecution will also test our commitment, but it's also a refining process. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail, but during the night an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, that 70 guys, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there, so they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Oops. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest's were at a loss, wondering what this might lead to. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. They knew the people were beginning to be swayed by the apostles in their teaching. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. A point of obedience coming here. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance And forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit. Whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this they were furious. And wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel. A teacher of the law. Who was honored by all the people. Stood up in the Sanhedrin. And ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel. Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago Thutius who... We don't see in other historical records, but the Bible talks about him appeared. so we're not real sure who he is. Claiming to be somebody, about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean, which was the beginning of the zealots, and one of Jesus' early disciples was who? Simon the Zealot. That's where these guys came from. Appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. Everybody hates taxes and that's what was going on. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. That is some wise counsel. His speech persuaded them, they called the apostles in and had them flogged, let's just beat them up anyway, just to feel better about ourselves, then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Flogging was 30 or 40 lashes minus 1, 39, there's different types of floggings that we also see in the Roman world, so this may have not been the full on, you know, beat them till they're almost dead kind of flogging, sometimes it was more of a, a whipping if you will, but it doesn't define what that was. Then they ordered him not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Nobody says, please persecute me. But when they love Jesus, if it happens, the Holy Spirit says, you are worthy. You're obeying me. I will bless you for that. They were counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. A man named Joe Bailey, in a little booklet years ago called The Gospel Blimp, said, Jesus Christ didn't commit the gospel to an advertising agency. He commissioned disciples. And if you've moved from this chair to this chair, you're a disciple. Disciples are called to obey the great commandment, the great commission. The issue is not do I or do I don't. It's more how do I do that? And we begin to converse among ourselves. How do we come up with more come events like fifth quarter's? And the Kitty College Carnival that's coming up. We could use some help. We being the Outreach Committee could use some help on the Kitty College Carnival. People who come here and about half have no church connection. It's a, it's a hot dog feed. It's a fun night. It's a way of saying, just come. Just come and see the church in action. We could use some of your help. If you'd like to help, let the church office know. That's a great way to just help fulfill the Great Commission. Get people here. They've experienced something they've never experienced before. And in that setting, guess what we do? We'd like to invite you to come to our church. We'd love to have you come and bring your children. We have a wana. We have these things. And as we pray, we pray that God would move some people from this chair to this chair. And that's how the church grows. I have several apps on my phone for news. I like to keep up on what's happening. And one that I checked the other day right across the headlines. The fastest growing church in the world. You'll never guess where it is unless you saw the same app I did. (laughs) There's a new film called Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. And on this film, you're going to hear someone saying, what if I told you that Islam is dead? One unidentified Iranian church leader says in the film, which is directed by a guy named Dalton Thomas. The world's fastest growing church, bar none, of all places is in Iran. This pastor that's being uh, interviewed says, What if I told you that the best evangelist for Jesus was the Ayatollah Khamenei? The Ayatollahs brought the true face of Islam to light and people discovered it was a lie. After 40 years under Islamic law, a utopia, according to them, They've had the worst devastation in the 5,000 year history of Iran. More Iranians have come to faith in Jesus in the last 20 years than 1,300 years since Islam swept through the Persia area combined. They call it the Iranian awakening. They own no property, no buildings, no central leadership, and is predominantly led by women. In an extremely... Men-led culture. Well, the film goes on and on and the article talks about the growth of that church. But let me close with this. A challenge to all of us from Iranian Christians. They say, disciples forsake the world and cling to Jesus till he comes. Converts don't. Disciples aren't engaged in a culture war Converts are. Disciples cherish, obey, and share the word of God. Converts don't. Disciples choose Jesus over anything and everything else. Converts don't. Converts run when the fire comes. Disciples don't. And he goes on to say the whole growth of the church, the fastest growing church in the world, is built on prayer. Do we need to pray? More than ever. More than ever. So we're going to pray now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And I want to give you just a few moments as we close before we sing to do some. You're going to go to the heart doctor. We all are. And the heart doctor's name is the Holy Spirit. And I've already been asking him to all week. You only get a few minutes. I've had the whole week to have him look at my heart. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> but I tell you what, he's very thorough. So I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes, bow your head, whatever is a proper posture for you. If you want to kneel, you go ahead and kneel, because this is between you and the Lord. And I want you to ask, as I've been asking this, this week, Lord, where are you disciplining me because you want me to grow? Where am I not obeying you? Show me. I want to be free. You put it in your words, but... That would be one way to pray. Next, I'd ask you to pray for yourself but also for our church as a whole. That God will do whatever it takes to purify us. To purify us. To free us from sin. Whatever that sin might be. It might be pride. Whatever whatever he reveals. That it would be shown to us personally and corporately in our lives personally and perhaps even in our church corporately if there is some kind of sin that is keeping us from being fruitful that he would reveal that to us let's pray that and then finally let's pray that As we face our own forms of persecution, nothing like Iran, nothing like India or other parts of the world. But a persecution, sometimes that subtle. A lack of being accepted or thinking it's okay or made to feel dumb because you follow Jesus. Let's take a moment to recommit ourselves, not as converts, but as disciples of Jesus. To put those things at his feet and ask the power of the Holy Spirit to overwhelm us to live lives worthy of the gospel where he's placed us as his people at this time and in this place. Father, thank you for the time you've given us to worship you in spirit and in truth. May this not be the end of our worship, but in some ways, maybe just the beginning for many of us throughout this week as you continue to reveal to us areas of disobedience, Areas that you want to change, areas that you want to free us up in, Lord, so that we might be those living, growing disciples that you're looking for, to use, to bear fruit, to fish for people, to help them realize we have eternal truth to offer them. Would you burden our hearts with people that don't know Jesus, Lord, and give us eyes to see and ears to hear this coming, these coming days and weeks of the people all around us, Begin to help us to know how you might want to use us individually and corporately to accomplish your purposes and continue to grow your church in this place. Thank you, Father. We give you all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.